0: Psalm 119, Uh, today we will finish our series, Sinners in the Hands of a Beautiful God. And I hope that this series has been a blessing to you, it's been a blessing to me to teach it. Um, Sometimes there are things that I need to hear just as badly as I need to preach them, and the topics that we've covered so far in this series absolutely fit that description, and uh, today's topic will as well. First in this series we talked about how God is beautiful, that he is not a distant judge, that he's not waiting up in heaven with his fist cocked, waiting to slam it down when we make mistakes. We talked about how God is near, that God is faithful, and that it is his beauty that causes us to worship him. That a powerful God is a god that we ought to dread, but a beautiful God ...is a God that we ought to worship. After that, we talked about the beauty of God's Word. Uh, and, And remember, when the psalmist is talking about the Word of God, he's talking about the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. These are not the first and most obvious choices that we would make when we're talking about beauty... Right, But uh, we talked about how beauty is often about seeing something from the proper perspective. When we're standing at the right angle, when we have the right perspective on something, it is then that we can see it as beautiful. So we talked about how when we see the law, the Old Testament law, from the proper perspective, we see its beauty because it reflects the beauty of God himself. And that God weaves himself throughout the entire word, and that in every line, in every word, his beauty is present, even if it requires that we are diving deeply into it just uh, to search it out. But sometimes having to take that extra step in order to see something uh, makes it even more beautiful um, than if it were plainly obvious. Then last week, we talked about how beauty and obedience are intertwined, that beauty and obedience fit together, that it's the beauty of God rather than um, obligation that leads us to obey Him. That true obedience doesn't flow from obligation, true obedience flows rather from admiration. And that the more we see uh, how much better and more satisfying the Lord is than the world, we can't not follow Him. That when we're captured by that beauty, it will cause us to close our eyes to the world and not to be led astray by false forms of beauty, by lesser forms of beauty. And so today we finish with the most difficult lesson in the series yet. See, it's difficult to uh, understand the beauty of God when we can't see him. It's difficult to see certain portions of Scripture when on the surface they seem so normal, mundane, sometimes even ugly. It's difficult for us to close our eyes to the beautiful things of the world and to focus on the unseen beauty of God. But none of those things are as difficult as seeing the beauty in affliction. Raise your hand if you like to suffer. Anyone? Of course. No one. Raise your hand if your first reaction to pain is to smile and clap your hands and exclaim, Oh goody, I've just been waiting for another trial. Yay! None of us. We view pain as being the worst possible outcome. We do everything that we possibly can to avoid it. We naturally searched for the easiest possible path where there is the least resistance. And when pain comes into our lives, when affliction comes into our lives, naturally our response is to look at God and ask him, why are you letting this happen to me? Rescue me from this right now. Isn't that what you're supposed to do? But what if pain was a gift? What if it is not God giving us his worst, but actually giving us the chance to experience him at his best? What if it means that God is entrusting us with a difficult burden in order to glorify him better and experience his fullness in a much deeper way? What if there was actually beauty in brokenness? The Japanese have many cultural traditions that are centuries old, each with a deep purpose that uh, pertains to a particular cultural mindset. And one such cultural mindset is called wabi-sabi. Uh, To us, that may sound like a restaurant, um, and I think it is a popular restaurant chain, but it means something much deeper to the Japanese. In Japan, wabi-sabi refers to the practice of seeing beauty in normality, seeing beauty in flaws rather than in perfection. In In the Western world, we prefer that everything is perfect and uniform, we prefer that things are flawless and well-made and that there is visually nothing wrong with anything. We want something to be perfectly made. If it's a bowl or a cup, we want it to be made by a machine so that it's perfectly smooth, perfectly shaped, without any imperfections. But wabi-sabi refer, I'm sorry, prefers the flaws of a handmade piece. With the subtle indentations that are left by the potter's hands, the, the slightly misshaped curves, the fact that no two will ever be alike, wabi-sabi sees beauty in mistake. And out of this mindset of wabi-sabi came the practice of kinsugi. Kinsugi dates back to the 17th century. It is said that a Japanese emperor had a beloved teacup, And he dropped that teacup and broke it. Rather than wanting to replace it with a new one, he wanted to have it fixed. So he sent it off to be repaired. We all know how difficult it would be to repair a ceramic cup without showing any of its cracks. But the craftsman in Japan who ended up repairing this cup took the opposite approach of hiding the cracks. Rather than hiding the cracks, he filled them with gold. And the result looked like this. This is an example here of a repaired teacup with the practice of kinsugi. So began this practice of kinsugi, repairing pottery that has been broken with gold. The words kin and sugi refer uh, to joining and gold. So literally it means to be joined with gold. After this, it became an increasingly popular practice in Japan to actually intentionally break pottery so that it could be repaired with this gold interlining. The Japanese loved the way that no two pieces of pottery will ever break the same way, and so you'll never have any two pieces completely alike, and every one of them is repaired by joining them with gold. Today what I hope to show us from Psalm 119 is that God's desire is to use affliction to grow us and to shape us and to make us more like him as he joins us with gold. So, we're going to be looking at Psalm 119, verses 65 through 96. And remember, as we read this, that Psalm 119 was not all written down at the same time. This was written over a long period of time as the author was living different seasons of his life. And so, each of these sections uh, points to a particular time in the author's life. And so, as we read this... Uh, notice how many times he uses the word affliction or afflicted. So Psalm 119, verses 65 through 96. You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces." Your hands have made and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice, because I have hoped in your word. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous, and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. Let your mercy come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. Let the insolent be put to shame, because they have wronged me with falsehood. As for me, I will meditate on your precepts. Let those who fear you turn to me, that they may know your testimonies. May my heart be blameless in your statutes, that I may not be put to shame. My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. My eyes long for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? For I have become like a wineskin in the smoke, yet I have not forgotten your statutes. How long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? The insolent have dug pitfalls for me. They do not live according to your law. All your commandments are sure. They persecute me with falsehood. Help me. They have almost made an end of me on earth, but I have not forsaken your precepts. In your steadfast love, give me life, that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth, and it stands fast. By your appointment, they stand this day, for all things are your servants. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction." I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. I am yours. Save me. For I have sought your precepts. The wicked lie in wait to destroy me, but I consider your testimonies. I have seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. And that is the word of the Lord from Psalm 119. As we begin this discussion today, I want us to have a question remaining in the back of our minds throughout the rest of the discussion, to sort of lay a foundation for what we'll be talking about. That question that I want remaining in our minds is this, if God is the most satisfying, beautiful, and fulfilling thing that there is, and pain drives us deeper into Him, Is it worth it? If God is the most satisfying, beautiful, and fulfilling thing there is, and pain drives us deeper into him, is it worth it? Now, as a disclaimer, I am not asking any of us to pretend to like pain. Nor am I asking us to deny or to downplay the displeasure that comes from affliction. I am not going to ask you to paste on a smile whenever you're hurting and pretend that everything is okay. Okay, I'm, I'm sure you guys have seen this meme online. Uh, this is called the This is Fine meme, right? We've all seen this before. we got this guy, dog I guess who is in a room that is on fire and sitting there, sipping his coffee, saying, this is fine, (laughs) this is okay. Before we dive into the scriptures, I just want you to know that I am not going to ask you to be like this, okay? So as we talk about these things, that is not what I am prescribing, all right? So let's get into it. Here is point number one. Affliction can come from sin, from the brokenness of the world, and even God himself. Typically, whenever something bad happens, people are quick to blame God. Ironically, we're also very slow to credit him when something good happens. Uh, But that's another story. The truth is we should not automatically point the finger at God when affliction comes our way. See, one of the central parts, one of the central facts of humanity is that he has given us the ability to make choices. And those choices have consequences. Not just for ourselves, but also for the people around us. Let's, let's use a, a silly example here. Let's say that you're out in the yard doing yard work Um, and you have a weed eater that you're using to clear a section of your yard. Now, let's say out of curiosity, you decide that you need to figure out how it will feel if you stick your foot in the path of the spinning weed eater line. So you stick your foot out there just to see what happens, and screaming out in pain, you find out it does not feel good at all, and you have someone drive you to the ER. Or, let's say, you're running the weed eater, and because it's so loud, you are unaware that one of your loved ones has come up behind you. And before they can uh, reach out and tap you on the shoulder, you swing that weed eater around, and you hit them in the foot. They scream out in pain, you scream out in horror, and then you drive them to the ER. And now imagine, you're sitting in the ER, in either situation, with an angry look on your face. And the doctor comes in and says, I can see that you're upset. And you respond by saying, Yes, I am. I'm angry. I'm angry at God. Because God claims to be good. And yet, here I am in the ER. Now, a bold doctor might respond, I think maybe you should be angry with yourself for being careless with a weed eater. This is a silly example, but it illustrates an important point. And that is sometimes we experience pain simply because we have made very bad choices. Sometimes we experience pain because people around us have made bad choices. So we shouldn't shake our fist at God when someone else hits us with a weed eater. Nor should we shake our fist at them, but that's a different sermon. It is also true that at times we experience pain simply as a result of living in a broken world. We are living in a world that's full of difficulty, that's full of disease, and a universe that is slowly breaking down more and more every day. And as much as we feel like we're advancing, the truth is we're never going to advance beyond brokenness. And why is the world broken? Because of sin. God made it perfect, and we messed it up. And every day it gets worse and worse. But the psalmist points us to an even deeper mystery. Something that on the surface strikes us so wrong, so confusing. It makes us ask the question, why would he say something like this? See, what the psalmist points us to is that there are times when God afflicts us. That's that's crazy. In verse 69, he clearly points out affliction that he's getting from other people. Okay, this is someone else with a weed eater. He says, the insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. He does the same thing in verse 78. Let the insolent be put to shame because they have wronged me with falsehood. As for me, I will meditate on your precepts. Okay, so this is the choices of others. Other people are smearing me with lies. I'm being persecuted. There's people coming after me. This is making my life difficult. This is the choices of others. In verse 67, he admits how he himself has made choices that have led to pain. Verse 67 Before I was afflicted, I went astray. I went astray. I I chose to be careless with the weed eater. I made choices that led to me being afflicted. But then in verse 75, he recognizes that part of this affliction comes from God himself says, I know, Lord, that your rules are righteous, and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Why would God do that? Why would God afflict? How is it that, God, uh, that, that the psalmist not only credits God for afflicting him, but specifically credits God's faithfulness in doing so? If you were counting when we read through our passage, there are four times that he mentioned the word affliction. Those are in verse 67, verse 71, verse 75, and verse 92. Let's go back and look at each one of these. Verse 67, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Verse 71, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Verse 75, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous, and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. And then verse 92, if your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. Now, each one of these verses has something in common. Something that's very, very purposeful in each of these verses. Every single time he mentions affliction... He speaks of it as a tool that leads him to a deeper commitment to God's word. Every single time. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous, and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. Every single time he connects this affliction from God to leading him to a deeper commitment to God's word. The fact is, just as disciplining our children is an act of love, God disciplines us at times. Sometimes we as parents have to teach our children difficult lessons. Sometimes we have to allow them to endure difficult times, but every single one of those is for their good. A good parent will allow their children to feel the consequences of decisions. A good parent will allow their children to go through something difficult so that they can learn responsibility, so it can grow them in maturity. A bad parent does everything they possibly can to make sure that their child is never inconvenienced. That will not prepare them for the world. A good parent leads their children through those inconveniences in order to make them a better person. So it is with our Father. God understands how affliction can cause us to grow. He he understands how our afflictions actually make us better. He understands how afflictions can be for our good. And that is not malicious. It's beneficial. Anyone who works out in a gym or goes running understands this well. Working out and running, especially, in my opinion, running, is a form of affliction. That is not something that is fun. That is torture. Okay, have you ever seen someone out on a run smiling? I literally never have, okay? Every time I see someone running, they look like they're dying. It's one of the reasons why I never do it. It looks like they are intentionally putting themselves through torture. I hate it. I do, however, go to the gym. And truthfully, that's not much fun either. Working out and lifting weights, literally what happens is you are tearing your muscle fibers. Okay, It's painful. The day after leg day, I look like a baby giraffe trying to walk up the stairs. And I'm like, why did I do this? This was the dumbest thing I've ever done. It's a form of affliction. It's unpleasant. But it is for my good. It is for my betterment. There are times when affliction teaches us lessons that we need to learn. Lessons that we would not have learned if everything was sunshine and rainbows. I'm sure that there are times that you can think of in your life when it was hard, but it caused you to learn things that made you more equipped. It caused you to learn things that, that strengthened you and, and made you better. It is also true that affliction can bring us closer to God, anybody remember the old uh, poem Footprints? This was really, really popular um, uh, probably ten years ago. Pretty much any time you would walk into a Christian bookstore, you would find footprints anywhere within fifteen feet of you. Okay, you could not walk fifteen feet in a Christian bookstore without finding footprints printed on something. And it was that old poem that, that talks about how there's two sets of footprints in the sand, and then all of a sudden there's only one set of footprints, and the person speaking wonders aloud, why when this uh, one set of footprints, why was there only one set of footprints? God, where were you? And God responds by saying, my child, when you see that one set of footprints, it was then that I was carrying you. Okay? I used to really, really like that poem. There are parts of it that I like still, but not too long ago I was online and I saw a discussion about this poem and someone made a really great point. Can you really think of any time in your life that God wasn't carrying you? Truthfully, there's never two sets of footprints ever. There's really only one the entire time because the entire time God is carrying us. God has never stopped carrying us. But when affliction comes into our lives, it reminds us of that fact. It reminds us, God, you are carrying me. And it causes us to look up at him when we've been so busy only looking at ourselves. Affliction reminds us of our need for God. It reminds us that we can't rely on our own strength. C.S. Lewis put it this way, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. If we think about the times in our lives when we have felt closest to God, I'm willing to bet that some of those times have been the worst of times. Because it is in those times that we experience the deep comfort from God's love. To drive this point home, I want you to consider the ultimate example of suffering. Jesus Christ. You see, there's no one ever besides Jesus who lived perfectly There's no one who deserved suffering less than Jesus. Jesus lived 100% according to the law, 100% faithful to God. He deserved nothing but blessing. And yet, Jesus Christ suffered more than any person who ever lived. And God afflicting Christ was the greatest gift that the world could ever receive. Because of the affliction of Christ, there is salvation For all who would believe. There's something that we need to realize. Sometimes afflictions are meant to teach us lessons. But here's the thing. Sometimes suffering is not about you at all. Sometimes your affliction is not even about you. Sometimes you might be suffering for the sake of the gospel. Sometimes you might be suffering in order to join in the sufferings of Christ in order that the world may see you and know the truth. Sometimes you are going to be the only Bible that other people read. And what they see from you as you suffer will speak to them so much more loud and clear than what they see from you when things are going well. So sometimes, affliction's not about you. It's so that God can use you to comfort someone else who's going through the same thing. Sometimes your affliction is a vehicle for, a, for, for the gospel to be carried to a broken world so that it can be understood more clearly. And that, my friends, is so incredibly worth it. There's a passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 where Paul is speaking and he says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so also we speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. It is all for your sake, so that as grace extends more and more to people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day, for this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison." As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. We talked last week about the unseen and closing our eyes to what we see physically and opening the eyes of our heart to what is unseen through faith. And in those times, we realize that sometimes our affliction is not about us. It's for the gospel. And if it's for the gospel, it's worth it. Point number two. Affliction and God's goodness are not mutually exclusive. Sometimes they are one and the same. Affliction and God's goodness seem at odds with each other. They seem to be opposed. It seems that we might have one or the other. But truthfully, sometimes... Affliction and God's goodness are the very same thing. This, perhaps, is probably the most confusing thing about this passage. That God can prove his goodness, not by preventing affliction, but actually by causing it. Look at how he started this section of his life in verse 65. He says, you have dealt well with your servant. O oh Lord, according to your word. Even as this guy has endured such suffering. And remember, he's now writing about something that he's experienced. Okay? He's just walked through something and now he's recording it in this psalm. And he starts out by saying, "You have dealt well with me, Lord, according to your word." On the other side of that pain, he says, "You have dealt well after affliction, after suffering, after going through trials. But he says, you are good and you do good. That's what he says in uh, verse 68. You are good and you do good. The things that you do, the things that come from you are good. And then again at verse 75. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness, You have afflicted me. He has the audacity to say that his affliction is the result of the faithfulness of God. He doesn't say, You afflicted me, but you're faithful anyway. He doesn't say, I'm going through some terrible affliction, but in spite of that, I know that you are faithful. He says, No, in your faithfulness, you have afflicted me. Through your faithfulness, because of your faithfulness, you have afflicted me. Follow that up with verse 90 where he says, Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth and it stands fast. This is such a difficult truth. The psalmist recognizes that God is doing a faithful work by sanctifying him god is using affliction to mold him to shape him to crush him to break him and then he is joining those pieces together with gold god is using affliction to beautifully break him in order to fill in the cracks with more of himself Going back to that question that we began with, if God is the most satisfying, beautiful, and fulfilling thing that there is, and pain would drive us deeper into Him, is it worth it? Is pain worth it if it means that I can have more of God? Is pain worth it if it means that I can be joined with gold of His Spirit to show the world how good God is? The psalmist recognizes that part of his affliction is to show off that gold in the lives of others. To show them the gold in the cracks. Look at verse 79. Let those who fear you turn to me, that they may know your testimonies. Let those who fear you turn to me, because when they turn to me, they're going to see and they're going to hear your testimony. When people turn to me, they're going to see and they're going to hear what you say, what you've done, how you have created in me this beauty from affliction. Here's the thing. When people look at any person who has ever lived, you look at any person in this room or any person outside when you, when you leave, any person at your job, any person who has ever lived, what we will see is brokenness. That's just facts. The reality of the broken world that we live in is that no one makes it out unscathed. No one makes it out of this life alive. All of us are cracked by various types of afflictions. But when people look at me, what I hope they see are those cracks filled with gold. I hope they see that God put me back together. I hope they see that God used my affliction to tell the better story of eternal hope beyond the broken world, of an eternity where these light and momentary afflictions are no more, that our current sufferings are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. And in the meantime... God is with me every step of the way. Here is point number three. Even as he afflicts us for our good, he comforts us for our peace. Even as he afflicts us for our good, he comforts us for our, for our peace. Look at verses 76 through 77. Verses 76 through 77 the psalmist says, Let your steadfast love comfort me, according to your promise to your servant. Let your mercy come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. Now remember that this directly follows verse 75 where he says, in your faithfulness, you have afflicted me. So right after saying, in your faithfulness, you have afflicted me, he follows that up by saying, let your steadfast love comfort me. Let your mercy come to me so that I might live. Isn't this such an interesting dichotomy? Lord, I know that you have afflicted me for my good, but as I endure it, please comfort me. He's not praying against the affliction. He's not praying for the prevention of it or even the deliverance from it. He knows that it's for his good, so he's praying that God will comfort him in the midst of it as he walks through it. We spend so much time in our prayer praying for escape from affliction. We spend most of our time praying that it would just pass, that God would get us out of it. God, get me to the other side of this, please. But we don't spend nearly enough time praying, God, I accept that this affliction is a result of your faithfulness. Will you comfort me in the meantime? I know that that is not an easy prayer to pray. Because in the middle of affliction, all we feel is negative. And that is why we need his comfort. Think about it like this. Think about a child going to the doctor to get shots. Those of us in the room who are parents understand what this is like. We hate taking our kids to the doctor to get shots. We do it because we have to. When you take your child to the doctor to get shots, that child does not understand that this is good for them. They don't understand that this is for their benefit. They can't understand how getting stabbed with a needle, which is going to be scary and is going to be painful, is for their good. They can't understand afterwards when when it bruises up, when they start to feel sick, when they get a fever and they're feeling awful. And they really don't understand when you are the one who is holding them down so that the doctor can stab them. Right? Right? Those of us who've been in that situation know that look of betrayal that they, see, that they give us. That look of broken trust and horror. As if that child who doesn't even know how to speak yet is looking at us and saying, How could you possibly allow this to happen to me? How could you betray me like this? Aren't you supposed to protect me from things like this? And what are you doing the whole time? You're trying to comfort them. You're rocking them back and forth. You're saying, it's okay, baby. I know it hurts. I know it's scary, but it's good for you. I'm right here with you, babe. I'm right here. It's okay. We're going to go get ice cream after this. I promise. You're a good, brave little one. In that moment, you are afflicting them for their good. And you are comforting them all the while. This is what the psalmist asked for. He asked that the steadfast love of God would comfort him as he is getting his shots. He knows that it is for his good, but it also scares him. And it hurts. And so in the meantime, he's asking God to hold him and comfort him until the pain passes. Guys, this is one of the things that makes our God so beautiful because God is not distant. He's not just out there. It's often in the middle of our affliction that we feel most abandoned. That we wonder where on earth where he is. It's in those times that we shake our fist at heaven and we cry out, "Are you even paying attention to what's going on down here? Do you even care?" And God, our beautiful God, is in heaven holding us. God is in heaven with us on his lap. And he's saying, I know it hurts and I know it's scary, but it's, it's for your good. I'm right here with you, son. I'm right here with you. It's okay. It's going to be worth it, I promise. And it's in our afflictions, that he reminds us what he did for us. He comforts us with the gospel saying, don't you know how much I love you? That I would endure all the pain in the world to save you for eternity. See, we don't ever have to question whether or not God cares. He cared so much that he took all of the sin of all humanity for all human history, and he drank the full cup of wrath of judgment in order that we might have a future hope that is everlasting. And every single time we hurt, that hurt should remind us of what he experienced on our behalf. We should be able to pray, God, this this affliction hurts so much and yet I know that what you endured was so much worse and yet you willingly walked through that because you love me so much. You willingly chose to be afflicted because you loved me and since you walked through that for me, I know that I can walk through this with you. The gospel comforts us, even as it afflicts us. I want to close with one final thought. Because again, I don't want us to leave thinking that we have to live like the, this is fine meme. Point number four is this. Faith and real feelings can coexist. Faith and real feelings can coexist. The psalmist has already acknowledged, accepted, even celebrated the fact that his affliction is from God and is for his good. But that does not mean that he endures it like some kind of a robotic Stepford wife. It doesn't mean that he doesn't feel the fullness of his feelings. We are called to face suffering with faith But we are not called to pretend that we don't have any feelings. Look once more at verses 81 through 88. My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. My eyes long for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? For I have become like a wineskin in the smoke. Yet I have not forgotten your statutes. How long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? The insolent have dug pitfalls for me. They do not live according to your law. All your commandments are sure. They persecute me with falsehood. Help me. They have almost made an end of me on earth. But I have not forgotten your precepts. In your steadfast love, give me life that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. These are not words that are spoken with a smile. These are not words that are shouted with happy-go-lucky sighs and giggles. These are words that are wept out in darkness. These are words that are screams in the midst of labor. These are words spoken in anguish. But these are not words spoken without hope. In verse 81, he says, My soul longs for your salvation. I want it so bad. I'm crying out for it. God, I need it. But I hope in your word. In verse 82, he's crying, when will you comfort me? Through his tears, he cries out, he's weeping, when will you comfort me, God? His heart is cracked, he's he's pouring out pain, and he says, my eyes long for your promise. I got my eyes peeled, God, I got my eyes fixed on the horizon, I'm waiting for the sun to rise because you promised that it would. So I'm just going to keep my eyes right there, waiting for the moment that I know is coming, when you are going to keep your promise to carry me through. I'm sure every single one of us has been in moments where we are crying out to God, when will you comfort me? I'm sure we've all felt what he feels in verse 83, where he says, I have become like a wineskin in the smoke. A wineskin in the smoke is one that was dried out. A fresh wineskin would be able to expand, to carry grape juice as it ferments. It's flexible. But if it was dried out, it would be useless. It would slowly become brittle and cracked. Being in smoke meant being held over fire and slowly dried out. You ever felt that way? God, I feel like I'm dried up. I feel like I'm brittle and broken. I haven't breathed fresh air in who knows how long. I'm just sitting in this smoke becoming more and more dry. Yet, he says, yet I have not forgotten your statutes. Yet I have not forgotten. It's what he holds on to. It's all he's got. It's the only thing that's carrying him through, and he is holding on to it. And in the next verse, he cries out, how long must your servant endure? Guys, the point that I'm trying to make here is that God gives us his word for us to hold on to. He gives us his promises to keep our eyes fixed on. He gives us eternal hope that there's going to be a never-ending glory on the other side of this affliction. But that doesn't mean that we're going to sit in the fire and go, this is fine. I'm okay with this. This is no big deal. No, that's not what he expects. But yet, is that not how we so often are in church? Isn't that how we walk into the building so often? When you walk into church and someone says to you, how are you? What's the first thing you always say? I'm fine. I'm good. We have other ways of saying it. You know, our Christian code language that we use, we'll we'll go, I'm blessed. I'm better than I deserve. In all those things, we're just sitting in a room on fire sometimes and just going this is fine. Why can't we walk in and be like, how am I doing? (laughs) Well, I feel like the room's on fire. I'm not fine. But I'm holding on to the promises of God, that's for sure. We should not deny the reality of the pain or close our eyes to the struggle, act like we don't feel anything, Oh, we feel every bit of it, and in the midst of it, we hold on with white knuckles to our hope in the Word of God, who has afflicted us in faithfulness. We don't keep our eyes on the pain itself. We keep our eyes on Him. Um, I know that I did this last week, um, and you might be thinking that this will be an every week thing, but... I want to close uh, with something else that I wrote a while back. Um, Wrote this as I was dealing with the pain of my father's death. It's called Why. Why? Why, Lord? Everywhere I look, all I see is brokenness. Shattered dreams, jilted hearts, a general sense of hopelessness, genocide, persecution, constant war with no solution, politicians blabbering noise pollution. It all seems like futility, and it leaves us all asking, why? Everywhere around us, death rears its ugly head. Like a pit with teeth that can never be quenched. Cackling and jeering through blood-stained lips, I'm taking every one of you who's next. It all seems so unfair, this ubiquitous pain. Why do we all have to suffer when we have a God who's promised he would always love us and commanded us to all love one another? And it's not just the bad guys who receive retribution, just punishment for all their oppression. Everyone suffers the same lot in life, regardless of how many or how few their transgressions. My father was a good man. He lifted your name high and wore your glory as his crown. He was my Gamaliel, my best friend. And I had to watch him drown. Why? And just when the torment abated, after I'd still held fast to your word, I served your body and in turn was berated and like a rag they threw me to the curb. Why? Why? Maybe I'm asking the wrong question. Maybe I'll never get an answer. But shall I only ever accept good from the Lord and not brokenness, heartbreak, or cancer? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. It's a truth I will never fully understand. Through it all, you give me your sweet presence and the promise that you have a good plan. Hidden deep within those waves of death is your righteous right hand of faithfulness. And the question of why has not been replaced, but now I'm asking with a tone filled with gratefulness, why, why do you love me so much that you would suffer more than I ever could just to save what you formed from the dust you hung bleeding from a cruel piece of wood? No one deserved pain any less than you, Lord, and after all I've done, you'd have every right to hate me. Instead, you faced all the torment a broken world could afford so that its brokenness wouldn't have to break me. Why, Lord? Why? You took the judgment only we could deserve to prove you're as good as much as you're just, and you demonstrated your unspeakable love in this while we were yet sinners. You died for us. So even though you slay me, Still what I trust. Not always because I want to, but I have to. I must. For whom have I in heaven and on earth except you? I hold fast to your promise. Behold, I make all things new. You give life where only death had existed. From the ashes you make beauty rise. I can feel it when I'm holding my beautiful daughter. I see your grace in her sweet little eyes. New life that is full of hope and promise has been your plan from day one. The joy you intended fills me with laughter as I wrestle with my little son. Surely your goodness and mercy will wipe every tear from every eye. So help me to remember without grace, I'm unworthy. So perhaps, I don't need to know why. Join me in prayer. God, thank you so much that in faithfulness, you afflict us. In faithfulness, you comfort us. In faithfulness, you use us for the gospel In faithfulness, you lead us to be a part of kingdom work. And so, Lord, even when it hurts, we will praise you. Even when it makes no sense to sing louder than, we will sing your praise. In the darkness, we hold fast to your promises. In the pain, Lord, we fix our eyes on the horizon, waiting for the sun to rise. God, give us your comfort and strength and use our affliction for the glory of your name. God, I pray for all who are here and all listening online or listening on the podcast. Lord, if there are people who are in the midst of affliction right now, will you be their comfort and strength? Will you be what carries them through? Will you be that rock that never moves? A refuge, a strong tower in times of trouble. So that, they would not give, so that they would not fear, though the earth gives way and falls into the heart of the sea. God, I pray that you would help us to find our life and our eternal hope in you. And now, Lord, we worship you in song once more. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would stand, we will uh, close in our final song.